18 to 20, and it can be found on page six. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That, by the way, was Vula, our church's neighborhood outreach coordinator. So please keep her in your prayers as she leads us in engaging our neighborhood and our neighbors. Let's uh, pause before we turn our attention to this passage of scripture. Let's say a word of prayer together. God, we thank you for this time. Already throughout the past week, we have heard a lot of words. Our lives, our ears, our hearts are full of words. But there's no word like your word. And no word that we need more than your word. Because your word creates, gives life to the dead, saves and rescues, sets free, forgives. Jesus, do all those things in this time and give us ears to hear your living word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I had the delight, really the honor, of teaching my kids one of my favorite backyard barbecue games, and that is Dizzy Bat. I don't know if you know this game. It's sort of in the same vein as the three-legged race and the potato sack race. And by the way, we got to get outside sometime as a church and do one of these relay race types of afternoons and something. Maybe we can organize one of those and play some Dizzy Bat. You might not be familiar with this one. This is where you, you take a bat, And each person, one at a time, has to put their forehead on the bat and run circles around it ten times, which, of course, makes you dizzy as all get out. You can barely stand up by the end of it, and then your task is to run over to some goal or some place and go around that area and then come back. And the funniest thing about it is you're so dizzy that you're trying to run over here, and the whole time you're leaning over there. You're trying to go in this direction, but you just can't help but to run in that direction. You're so spun around. As I thought about it this week, thinking about the end of our dizzy bat weather, can't do it so much so easily in this kind of rain, I was thinking about how dizzy bat might be a metaphor for churches. So often, the chaos of life 
can make us spiritually dizzy, spinning us around. Of course, churches may face temptations to be cool and the popular church on the block, and, and that can get you going in all sorts of directions as well. You see, in church life and ministry, in the Christian life, if you don't know what your goal is, you might end up in the bushes. Which is why at the beginning of every fall, we like to spend a few weeks re-asking ourselves the question, what are we all about at Grace Meridian Hill? What is this church for? To refresh our sense of calling, to make sure that we have a common sense of purpose, to get to where we feel that God has called us to go, to get to whom we feel that God has called us, namely the person of Jesus. And we do that each fall by looking afresh at our mission statement, the mission statement of our church, which you'll find in this card that was slipped into your Bulletin, if you could pull those out at this time and maybe also pull out a magnifying glass. Uh, but if you can squint together with me or if you want to just listen, I want to read for you what our church's mission is. Our mission is to build a gospel community that is intentionally, spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered for the good of our neighbors and the glory of Jesus Christ in Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams Morgan, Petworth, and beyond. We're here to build a gospel community that is intentionally, spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, neighborhood-centered. But what does that mean, right? And so for the next couple of weeks, we're trying to, we're going to unpack that mission statement. We're going to take and look at some biblical foundations that undergird some of these key ideas and a few phrases that we find in this mission statement. So that by the end of it, Lord willing, we'll have a little crisper and clearer sense of what God has called us to and what kind of church we're trying to be. Some of you are new to our community. We love that we're here. you're here. We welcome you. Uh, some of you have been around, but maybe you just need a stronger sense of where you fit in and, and how you can contribute to the kind of community we're trying to build. Today, we're going to look at this one phrase, gospel community. Here at Grace Meridian Hill, we long to build, by God's grace, a gospel community. What does that mean? A gospel community is a community that's anchored in the gospel, that's grounded in the gospel. That means to be defined by to be fueled by, to be propelled into the lives of our neighbors by the gospel. And what's the gospel? That's a word from the Bible that simply means the good news that God, by his loving initiative, God, by his, not ours, his loving initiative, sent his son Jesus into our broken and sinful world to live and to die and to rise again to make all things new, starting with you. To make all old things new, to make all dead things live, to make all dark things light again by the grace of Jesus, our Savior. A gospel community is a place where people's lives are therefore being changed by the grace of God, where 
people like you and me are becoming free of their bondage to sin. People that are experiencing the true forgiveness of God, a freedom from guilt and condemnation. People that are finding healing of their lifelong wounds. Recently read a report that up in New York City, the World Trade Center Cortland subway station has finally been reopened after having been closed since the devastation of the terrorist attacks on 9-11 in 2001. 17 years laying quiet, finally now, triumphantly open again. Some of us have closed subway stations. Uh, Parts of your life, maybe your heart, uh, that have been shut down because of of maybe some emotional terror uh, that was introduced into your life, maybe literally 17 years ago. Uh, Maybe spiritual hardship, maybe just something in your life that shut that thing down. God's here to open that station back up. The grace of God gives new life and and new traffic of the Holy Spirit, giving us energy and freedom in life all over again. This is the repairing work of God's grace that a gospel community is all about, a place where you're free to be flawed, where you're free to be, maybe in a city like ours, the worst thing that you might be accused of being, and that's mediocre, (laughs) forgettable. A place where you're neither defined by your failures nor defined by your successes because you're defined by the cross of Jesus. Because here's the great promise that is the lifeblood of a gospel community. That there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing that you can do in your failures to make God love you less, because in Jesus, he already loves you perfectly, unchangeably. Let the people say amen. A gospel community is a church where Jesus is changing our relationships, a place where you can finally come out of hiding. You see, with the new security that you find in the love of God, you can actually be emboldened to tell the truth about yourself. I am that flawed. I am that sinful. But I'm being healed. And I'm being renewed. And I'm being changed by the grace of God. And you can tell that story with radical honesty. A place where we can repent freely. Where we can forgive freely. Where we're not intimidated by each other's flaws. Where it's safe to be the true you. And who's not longing for a more authentic life like that. A place where we can get over religious guilt and and fear, where we can be finally free to be a, a broken, flawed, messed up, limping community together, where we can call each other out on all the pretending that we normally try to get away with. Pretending we're better than we are, pretending we're all put together, pretending that we're flawless, pretending that we like the image in the mirror that we see day to day. Because let's face it, some of us, the deepest kind of healing we need is freedom from our self-loathing. And that comes from knowing that you are loved by God. 
That you are loved in your flaws, not despite them, but in your sins, in your mistakes, in your failings. You are loved by a God who sees them all because he loves you in Jesus Christ. It's a community where we're a place in which what ultimately binds us together, this scattered hodgepodge mix of people, that what binds us together isn't ultimately a common personality. You know, we're all a bunch of extroverts, we're all a bunch of introverts, we're all a bunch of weirdos or not weirdos or whatever. It's not a common ethnic background, it's not a a common economic background, but what ultimately binds us together is having a common Savior and a common need for this Savior and a common joy in being a church that's being renewed daily, weekly in our love for this Savior, Jesus. You see, a gospel community is a place where people pray. This is what I'd like to ponder together in the remainder of our time. A gospel community is a praying community. And you say, well, how does that work? How does that fit in under this banner of gospel community? Well, do you know that according to the Bible, prayer is one of the clearest markers that the gospel is at work in a person's life and in a church's life? How is it? How is it that the good news of God's grace produces the fruit of vibrant prayer. Well, here's how. Number one, the gospel frees us to be weak. The gospel frees us to be weak. This is really simple, but really profound. Prayer starts with admitting that you're needy. Prayer starts with confessing That you're helpless, that you're out of resources, that you don't have all the answers. We see this in verse 13 right from the start. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. It's so simple, it's easy to miss. There's something profound here that some of us refuse to pray because we refuse to admit that we're truly in trouble. And here's the gospel that invites us to say, look, there's no more pretending and no more performing. You can pray because you can finally admit to yourself, let alone to God. Finally, you can admit just how much deep doo-doo you're really in. Where are you, friends, today, this morning, most avoiding that feeling of helplessness? Maybe that's where you need to begin praying. Throughout this summer, as my family were, we were on the road often, uh, there were plenty of opportunities for me to get lost. Driving around, trying to navigate through new roads and new towns and Half the time with my wife right next to me, I was very self-conscious about uh, not being so proud that I couldn't admit when I was lost. And sometimes, of course, it came to that where I'm spinning around trying to drive like free and until finally Paula says, 
hey, are we lost? <laughs> like, we're not really going where we're supposed to be going. You know, there's that common saying or observation, right? People that are too proud to admit that they are lost, right? The human ego, too often on the road, the male ego, some would say, right? Prayer comes naturally to people that are finally willing to admit that they're lost and they need a divine GPS, someone that can hold them by their right hand, someone that can guide them, even God himself. And you might say, well, this seems obvious, but I don't know that it's that obvious, right? Here's the saying, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. I think the truth of each of our hearts more typically, practically, is is anyone among you in trouble? Well, let me plan. Uh, is any one of you in, in trouble? Uh, l- let me double my efforts here in what's not working out. Uh, is anyone in trouble? Let me strategize. Let me plan. And all those things are good and blessed of God, of course. But listen, the biggest enemy of prayer is not your busy schedule. Uh, the biggest a challenge to your ability to pray freely and more vibrantly is not just your lack of self-discipline. It's our self-reliance. It's our belief in our own resourcefulness and our unwillingness to believe that God truly is a God who loves to be your helper, who loves to give you help. Because prideful people don't pray, don't look to something outside of themselves for life. Paul Miller, a wonderful teacher in his book, A Praying Life, which I've quoted extensively over the years, so helpful, such a helpful book. He says this, we have an allergic reaction to dependency, but this is the state of the heart most necessary For a praying life. A needy heart is a praying heart. Dependency is the heart of prayer. And of course, in normal biological life, part of growing up means growing in this sort of sense of uh, first beginning as a small child, as a baby, wholly dependent upon my parents and slowly becoming less and less dependent upon them until finally, as some of you have, you've left home perhaps for college. Maybe that's what brought you to Washington, D.C. And here you are for the first time away from home in some cases as we continue to grow up in more and more independence. And the problem, of course, is we take that mindset and that trajectory and we think that's the same kind of pathway to maturity spiritually before God, and the truth is, it's not. It's actually the exact opposite. You see, because maturity in the Christian life, according to the Bible, is actually becoming more and more like a child. You're actually growing more dependent upon God, his direction, his wisdom, his forgiveness, his life. You're becoming more like a child, acknowledging your helplessness, clinging to your father, open to just blurting out your needs at every moment of the day, you become more like a child. Christian spirituality truly is actually like a Benjamin Button spirituality. You're actually getting younger even as you're getting older, more childlike. 
Because you never grow out of your need for God's grace. You grow into, rather, into an awareness of just how dependent you actually always were and never saw that you were or were unwilling to admit that you were. You grow into an awareness of just how spiritually blind and foolish and sinful and needy for a saver you've always been, and now you're also growing, therefore, into a greater joy and a freedom and a love for that savior that has helped you so. Friends, the gospel frees us to be weak in this way, to acknowledge our helplessness, and therefore the gospel produces the great fruit of prayer. Secondly, the gospel produces vibrant prayer because it produces a new intimacy with God. We naturally, by our nature, relate to God with a sense of fearfulness, uh, even a sense of terror, uh, trying to avoid punishment. Uh, Our natural bent towards God is broken, sinful people is to avoid God to keep our distance from him. Or if you're spending time with him apart from the gospel, then you might pray, but really you're trying to use God to get what you really want out of life. You're not really intimate with him. You're just pushing the buttons on the vending machine, right? The gospel tells us that Jesus has taken all the punishment that you deserve for your sins on the cross. He's experienced it all. He's born Judgment in your place that you might experience the forgiveness and the freedom of Christ. And that means then there's no more condemnation. There's no more living out of fear. And you finally come to God, not because you have to, but because you want to. Because you want to see his face up close now. You're not running from, you're running to. And you want to get near. A new kind of intimacy is born. You begin to love God and you begin to commune with him. This is a mystery, I think, that's embedded in verse 13, the second half. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. I mean, again, think about how profound this is. Is anyone happy? Let them sing about it before God. Just telling God how great He is. Listen, when was the last time you prayed to God because you were happy? When was the last time you prayed just to tell God how great he is? See, because if you only pray when you're in trouble, though you're welcomed to, right? We just said that. But if you only pray when you're in trouble... You're in danger of only making prayer into this transaction, and you're in danger of making God only into your personal servant, or like we said, a vending machine. This second clause here is a test, isn't it? Do you ever turn to God when you're happy? Do you ever turn to God just to be with him? Beloved, it's so important for us to restore into our lives if you've lost it or maybe Learn, as part of your learning about the gospel of grace, a kind of praying that is simply a sitting before the presence of God. A communing, a being with, not just asking for or asking from, but a sitting, a loving, a being, a basking 
And oftentimes that means in silence, in stillness. This is an important part of prayer that's just almost mission impossible in modern life. To understand that one of the best ways in which you can pray is a way that we normally don't think of prayer, which is simply to sit in stillness and in silence. Uh, One teacher and pastor that's just been so helpful to me recently as I've read his book called The Imperfect Pastor, which many of you will agree is a book that might be helpful for me, (laughs) The Imperfect Pastor, he notes how much so many of us are jumping in with our prayers and we're just shooting from the hip so much, in fact, we don't realize we're interrupting God. It's like you're stepping into a bad conversation where the person just can't stop talking, and they're just laying out their thoughts, but they're not ever listening. Are you listening to God in prayer? Zach writes this, Solitude and silence waits for Jesus' word and lead. It enables us, silence enables us, to tend to all that swirls within us and to discern the difference between his voice and ours, the difference between his voice and the voices all around us so that we respond to him rather than react to our first draft thought and emotion. I mean, silence in prayer begins to retrain our hearts, not simply to react to the first thing that comes to our mind and to our hearts, It trains our hearts to pay attention to God. It it trains our hearts to be able to rest in God's presence. And dearly beloved, you know this is a fight. And so you must fight. We must fight to learn the secret of silence and solitude in prayer as an act of love for God. A communing prayer before God. Psalm 33, 20 says this, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 37, 7, be still before the Lord. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. What might this look like practically for you this coming week? It might mean carving out just 10 minutes of silence before God. Try it. Every day this week, just 10 minutes of silence in your room. God can meet us anywhere and in whatever chaos that life throws our way, but there is something to fighting for the quiet place. Because in a city like ours, with all the noise and the chaos, some literal, some emotional and verbal, this may be the most countercultural and the most needed form of prayer that's been given to us. A prayer of communion. A prayer of solitude. Before we finish up, let me briefly point out three important themes from this passage. All about prayer. First, power. Secondly, community. And thirdly, faith. First, power. We see this throughout this passage. Again and again, James is reminding us to believe in the unseen and almost untested power of prayer. To heal physical sicknesses. To heal the sicknesses of our soul. We're hearing about the forgiveness of our sins. To heal relationships. Confess your sins to one another. The power of God at work in a community that is desperately, lovingly, and joyfully committed 
to prayer. As verse 16 says crystal clearly, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And if you're wondering what righteous means, it doesn't mean the most morally upstanding person that God is keeping score and he's only going to answer your prayers if you have been nice and not naughty. That's Santa Claus, not the God of the Bible. Righteous means, first and foremost, the person that's on their knees before God. There's no greater righteousness than the humility of someone that's prostrate before God in the helplessness that we already talked about. How do we know? Because Elijah is James's primary example, the prophet from the Old Testament, and he was a flawed dude. He didn't always get it right, but one thing he was, was lying on the ground, sometimes literally begging God to show up with his power and his grace. Those are the ones that God promises to meet when they pray and when they ask boldly, because God is able to do all things. This is the power that we're promised in prayer. God is able to do all things, and God is generous to give us gifts even more than we deserve. He withholds nothing from us that is good. God withholds nothing from us in Christ that is for our good. As he himself, Jesus says in Luke 18, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So will you pray about it? Will you pray bringing that thing before the Lord himself. Now, this is why I think it's important to remember this point of power. Because prayer on the surface of it looks really foolish. Because when you're really in a jam, what do you really need to do? Well, get busy, get working, solve the problem, fix it, right? That's our first impulse always. But what if we really believe this? That what is impossible with man is possible with God. I mean, consider this, friends. Whoever would have thought that the salvation of the world could be accomplished by the execution of an obscure Jewish man who was a convicted criminal crucified on a Roman cross. Whoever thought that the salvation of the world could be arranged that way. How foolish, we might say. God has always been in the business of carrying out his purposes by means that appear foolish in the eyes of the world. Do you dare to appear foolish to others, even to yourself, by making prayer your first impulse, not your last? Not a last resort, but rather a first move into the purposes and the promises of God. At times, it will feel naive. It might even feel efficient, inefficient, or foolish. But friends, don't forget that when you pray, you are accessing the very same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Prayer is power. Secondly, prayer builds community. Builds community. James invites us not to pray just alone, but also to pray together. In verse 19, he addresses us as brothers and sisters. He's talking about us as a praying family. In verse 14, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. We can talk more about 
what that means in the Q&A time, but you can see how there's an invitation to ask your church leaders to pray over you. That there's a sense in which God invites that kind of a relationship, calling others to pray when your prayers are just running out. In verse 16, we're told, confess your sins to each other and to pray for each other. He's talking specifically about when you've wronged another person. Are you going and being honest? Are you asking for forgiveness? And then are you praying to seal the relationship with renewed hope and renewed love? Well, you're not just talking about the wrongs that you've done, but you're praying through it together. You see, because a praying community cares for one another in our sicknesses, cares for one another in our brokenness, cares for one another in our broken relationships as well. Even reaching out to those perhaps that might have stepped away or strayed away for various reasons. You see this in those last verses, my brothers and sisters, verse 19, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. What would it look like prayerfully for us to be a community that humbly and lovingly calls people back? Not just to church services, but to a family. Calls people back, not just to us, but to the God of grace that wants to heal and restore. Uh, Who who is there in your life maybe that you've seen sort of drift? Not only from relationships with you and your friends, but from God. Uh, What would it look like for you to prayerfully approach, love, sit with, restore, forgive, weep. What would that look like in a community like ours? Somebody did that for me years ago. Who do you need to do that for? To reach out a hand, to walk with. Will we learn to pray as a way of building community, of extending ourselves to one another? Lastly, faith. Uh, James invites us to prayers that are prayers of faith. Verse 15 talks about the importance of asking things of God in faith in order for them to be powerful and effective. And someone immediately says, well, gosh, that's what I'm so discouraged about. I don't feel like I have enough faith. And you got to understand what God is always asking of us is not just more faith as if it's something you have to conjure up inside of you. I mean, I feel this way sometimes. Someone says, well, do you have faith that God can move and you feel like I need to get this engine running somehow? It's this terrible feeling and that's not what God is asking of you. What he's not asking of you, what he's asking of you is not just more faith that you conjure up, but a simple but sincere faith, a a childlike faith, not an extravagant faith, but one who like a little child says, my daddy can do anything anything. Have you confessed that before God lately? You pray with faith, and I want to get really practical here. One of the best ways that you can express living faith in prayer is by saying, amen. Now, I'm saying yes. I was pausing there for a reason. 
I genuinely believe, as I've been observing over the years and, and being, as a minister, as a Christian myself, I think we have corporately lost the art of the amen. What does amen mean? Amen means, literally, from the ancient languages, it just means I agree. It means it's true, uh, what was just said. It means so be it, or, or just simply, amen means yes. You see, this is how we actively participate in the prayer of others. We actively say, hey, what they just said, yes. It's a divine ditto. That's what you're saying. In other words, every time you say amen, you know you just multiplied that prayer by two. It's like someone prayed it twice. So you better add up your amens. Because we're adding our faith together. One person might pray. You get a whole room saying amen. You got a whole room praying. Your amen can be one of the simplest and most powerful expressions of faith in group prayer. So let the people say amen. Amen. And know that when you're doing this, you're putting your confidence not in yourself, not in the artfulness of your prayer or the eloquence of the word that you just spoke, but you're putting your confidence In God himself. Verse 14 gives us this phrase, in the name of the Lord, praying in the name of the Lord. This is so important, friends. There's a reason why the common tradition of Christian prayer is to finish by saying, in Jesus' name, or some other variation of that. What we're saying when we say, in Jesus' name, is we're saying, we are praying, grounded in The person of Jesus. He's the one that brings our prayers to God. When we say in Jesus' name, we're saying we're praying not by our authority, but by Jesus' authority. We're saying in Jesus' name because we're praying not according to our resources, but rather according to Jesus' resources. And this is the same Jesus that said, listen... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we pray in Jesus' name, not in Duke's name, because if you do, you're in trouble. Or your name, we're in trouble. You, when you pray in Jesus' name, you are praying in defiance to self-reliance. So, don't mumble. In Jesus' name. You finish up your prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Shout it! Because that's the hope you have that God is listening. It's the hope you have that He's going to answer your prayer. It's your hope, your confidence before a broken world that there's a God who's on the move. And so whatever was just said, no matter how feeble, no matter how mumbling up to that point, no matter how broken and scattered, you can't even keep your mind focused. Sometimes you don't even know what you prayed. Pray it in Jesus' name and stamp down your amen and walk away with a smile on your face and with big eyes knowing that, oh man, I can't wait to see how God is going to answer that prayer. 
When we pray in the name of our mediator, we pray boldly with his authority by the merit of his blood, submitted to his sovereign will, confident in Jesus' promises. And so we pray and not mumble in Jesus' name as the climax of our faith. Rise up to that final moment and sprinkle in your amens all along the way as we join our faith together in prayer. And let the people say amen. Amen. And so we pray as a broken and weak people. And we pray as a people longing for new intimacy. No, I'm not praying yet. I'm finishing up here. And we pray. I know I threw you off there. And we pray. (laughs) I see some of y'all bow. You can bow. Go ahead. Pray. Because I need, I need prayer to finish this up. Some of you are praying that the whole time. Finish it up, Pastor. We are praying with power. We are praying as a means of community building. We are praying with faith. And so you say, great ideas. What can I do practically? What can I do immediately? Well, you know what you can do right now? You can get this out right here. Woo, that's dramatic. You can get this out right here. There's a little spot on the connect form that says prayer needs. For some of you, one of your biggest, maybe freshest acts of faith right now might be to jot down something really cruddy going on in your life that you desperately need somebody else to pray for. Oh, dear community, please pray for me. The prayer team will look over that. If you need a pastor to be praying over something specific, we would love to pray for you. One of the first things that you can do is submit a prayer need on this card or to open up the church app, Grace Meridian Hill. You can just download it on any app store, and submit a prayer need through the app. Maybe this week, some of you need to set aside just 10 minutes a day, or maybe 10 minutes one day, you just give it a try to sit in silence before Jesus. Maybe you need to come out to the engine room, our monthly group prayer time on Thursday evenings. Maybe some of you might be moved to join the prayer team. You can sign up even today. So when someone, there you go, you can talk to Asia, hooting and hollering over here. When someone tells you about a problem, someone's gonna tell, someone is going to tell you about something challenging in life in the next 30 minutes. You know what you can do? You can say, and you can literally say this, this might be a little awkward, but can I pray for you right now? Just pray for them right now. And it can be one sentence. You just say, God, please help my friend. In Jesus' name, amen, in that last part. You better hear you hooting and hollering that, right? What else can you do? You can help organize prayer in your neighborhood group. Keep track of prayer needs. Make it a vibrant part of community life. You can do that in the mom's group. You can look to pray in small groups of little three-people gatherings called triads. You can talk to Asia about that as well. See, friends, when you do these, these are little concrete acts We've been giving you a deep foundation of where this comes from, but just know that as you're doing this, you're not just signing up for an activity. You're actually building a gospel community. You see, you're building a different kind of church community that's finally learning to become more like a hospital than a country club, where it's normal to have sick and broken people just scattered around, people like you and me, right? Where it's a normal thing to, as we pray to grow in a sense of hopefulness, right? There's a joy that comes about in a praying church because you're expecting God to be on the move and you have eyes to see God when he does move. 
And you become a more humble community because you're just attentive to God's leading. You're not saying, here, this is what we got to do. You're saying, God, what should we do? And you're waiting on him. You're looking for him. We're talking more about what Jesus is doing and sharing testimonies about it, what he has done, than simply what we're doing or what we plan to do. Don't you want to be a part of a community like that? A gospel community, a praying community. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would do all this in our midst by the power of your gospel at work in our lives, in our relationships. And we pray that through all this, you would just do something deep and different in our church this year. And that we'd be able to look at it and say, it's not because we, we strategize better, though we might have, or not ultimately because we're, we're just gifted. No, we would say it's because we began to pray, and through our prayers, Jesus showed up. And that would be our testimony. And so all this we're longing for, for your glory, for your glory. And so we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand up and let's sing about it.